Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everybody, and who's out there, and welcome to CC Partners webinar on reopening Ontario again and COVID vaccine policies in the construction industry. Uh, for those I haven't met, I'm Jay Ryder. I'm here today with my colleagues uh, Mike McCollum and Christina Tomaino, all of CC Partners. Uh, we've got uh, an agenda to cover this morning that has seven uh, topics to be canvassed that are hopefully uh, both timely, relevant, and informative for all of you. Uh, first of all, we'll review Ontario's three-step uh, reopening plan, the temporary paid sick leave program that was announced uh, a few weeks ago, effectively managing attendance at work sites uh, while the pandemic uh, continues, refusals to attend at the work site, COVID-19 testing practices, vaccine policies, which are uh, a topic of great interest at the moment and proof of vaccine uh, or worksite uh, or project site admission. Um, our format is going to be uh, approximately one hour in terms of the presentation and then a half an hour for Q&A at the end. Uh, we're going to canvas both the union and non-union uh, topics where applicable and identify different considerations in the union environment. Uh, at the end, during the Q&A, we'll have, uh, you've got your question and answer function on the Zoom uh, that you can submit your questions in writing and we'll try and answer as many as we can uh, with the time allowed. So without uh, any further ado, I'm gonna kick it over to Christina to start uh, the presentation. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, so first, we'll, we'll just touch on Ontario's reopening plan. So first we had stages, then we had phases, now we have steps. Uh, essentially the, the same idea as we've seen before with a gradual reopening of various amenities, businesses, et cetera, to correspond with the vaccination rate. Um, as the current threshold. So as you'll see on the slide, we've outlined the various aspects of society that will be reopening uh, effective this Friday, which is exciting. So we can all get out and enjoy a nice uh, patio dinner at some time over the weekend. And this is a great milestone for all of us, as we can see that larger outdoor gatherings, outdoor dining and non-essential retail will be opening as well as outdoor amenities such as campsites, parks, uh, pools and splash pads. And then the second step, uh, which has been currently set for July 2nd, although as we've seen, there have been some acceleration of these timelines, that will require vaccination of 70% of adults with one dose and 20% with two doses. Uh, and as we've seen in recent weeks, there's been a profound acceleration of vaccination rates. Uh, so hopefully we'll see this milestone reach sooner rather than later. 
This will allow us to have larger outdoor gatherings and small indoor gatherings, again, with dining, retail, and personal care services opening. I know there's a number of my colleagues in the workplace who are looking forward to that and, and can't wait to go get a haircut. So that's coming in July. And then towards the end of July, when we have 70 to 80% of adults fully vaccinated, my apologies, vaccinated with one dose and 25% fully vaccinated, uh, we'll see the next stage of reopening, which will permit a broader range of indoor services, uh, including, again, essential retail, meeting spaces, indoor sports, indoor attractions. Uh, excitingly, casinos and bingo halls have been uh, specified. So that we, we're hoping to see by the end of the summer at the earliest. Uh, the important caveat is the government, of course, has the ability to modify these as necessary if the COVID-19 trends uh, don't go the way that, that it's expected and it's hoped for it to go. And I'm sure everyone's very used to these timelines and these stages being rearranged on the fly at this point, but we can, we can all hope that uh, we'll have some level of normalcy by the end of the summer. And for our construction clients joining us today, you'll know that the, the three stages of reopening don't have a huge impact on your business where things have been um, operations as normal for a period of time now as an essential service, uh, but certainly demand will, will hopefully kick up as more things reopen. So moving into the temporary paid sick leave, this was introduced back in April uh, after much public uh, demand for a paid sick leave program to correspond with the infectious disease emergency leave, which was previously an unpaid benefit. So the new program allows employees to have three days of paid infectious disease emergency leave. Uh, employers will be given the corresponding reimbursement. There's a portal that allows employers to request that reimbursement. So this is retroactive to April 19th and will continue until September 25th, 2021. So employees are entitled to $200 per day or their regular day's pay, whichever is greater. And employers will be entitled um, to that same reimbursement. Now, the important aspect of this is that if you're an employer who already provides paid sick days of some kind, either through your own uh, internal programs or if you have a collective agreement that provides for a greater right or benefit, these additional sick days are not um, in addition to those benefits currently provided. The benefits are inclusive. So for example, if you currently provide employees with two sick days that they can take for reasons that would be covered under the infectious disease emergency leave and those two days are paid, you would only be required to provide one additional day of paid leave uh, due to this new legislation. If you already provide three or more days, then this new entitlement is, is included in what you've already provided and you can uh, continue status quo. And I will now pass it over to Mike, I believe, 
to take us through the considerations in a post-pandemic workplace. Thank you, Christina, and good morning, everybody. Just a quick reminder, you should see a little Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. If you have questions for the panelists, please feel free to use it. Use that button, submit your question, and when we're finished with the presentation, uh, we will try to get through the questions as we can. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about managing attendance in the worksite now. And, you know, Christina just went through very helpfully a review of the uh, reopening plan uh, and uh, the fact that we do have some uh, paid sick leave. But obviously your goal is to have your workers come to work and, and do productive work for you. And what we really need to keep in mind is a balancing between uh, productivity and attendance at the workplace on the one hand, but ensuring that we're following our public health guidance and protocols uh, and regulations on the other hand. Um, keep in mind, if, if your people don't feel safe at work, they're probably less likely to come. So, you know, part of managing attendance at the worksite is making sure that we as employers are doing our due diligence to follow the public health guidelines and requirements and get people back to work in a productive and safe capacity. Uh, we tackled this last year in our webinars, which you can also find on our website, uh, ccpartners.ca under the broadcasts tab. But we're gonna go over some things again. Even working outside, it's really important that your workers are maintaining a proper social distance and abiding by the public health requirements to wear proper PPE, including of course, a face mask. So we as employers, and, and particularly in the construction industry, uh, need to be mindful of this uh, because even though the construction industry COVID numbers haven't been that bad throughout the pandemic, the uh, um, compliance uh, with public health guidelines uh, has left a lot to be desired. And remember, as part of your responsibility as an employer under the Occupational Health and Safety Act in Ontario, to avoid hazards in the workplace to the extent you can, these public health guidelines are now part of that responsibility. So you're going to, you're going to want to think about certain policies, protocols, and strategies to maintain these public health guidelines. For example, you may want to stagger work times, including start and end times, and importantly, breaks. While you're monitoring for other health and safety uh, uh, items on the worksite as you normally would do, also monitor and face your, your public health restrictions. Things like uh, if you're seeing people working too close together that don't need to be, give them a reminder to keep a distance. Make sure people are wearing their face masks or face shields uh, as appropriate in the circumstances, just like you would be monitoring for hard hats and work boots. You can try to limit in-person gatherings um, in particular, things like uh, your, your uh, daily toolbox talks or any safety talks you're having. Uh, see if you can do it with, uh, uh, you know, perhaps with more, more foremen leading the groups with smaller groups uh, rather than having everybody congregate together uh, in, in one or a fewer number of uh, larger groups throughout the day. And even things like site visits. You know, we're actually having clients who are saying uh, one thing the pandemic has done is, is uh, you know, given them a reason to transition to virtual site visits. And that's a good way to 
uh, uh, respect public health guidelines on on keeping a, a social distance that way. Uh, I mean, look, we're doing virtual uh, webinars or we're doing virtual seminars. We're doing virtual hearings these days. Um, think about how you can use technology uh, in, 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 in your on-site work to uh, uh, abide by the public health standards. And this is something that we've been stressing since the beginning of the pandemic, and we can't stress it enough. Have written policies and document all of your protective measures. Uh, some of our colleagues in the HR world will tell you if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So make sure that you have everything properly documented. All of your good efforts are properly documented because under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, uh, where you have, a, again, you have a requirement to try to avoid all hazards, you have a due diligence defense, but that really only works if you can prove that you've done your due diligence. So please document everything. While the goal is to have employees back on the site, keep in mind that there may be legitimate reasons why an employee cannot come back to the work site and may be absent or may be entitled to a job protected leave. Uh, these could include things like an exposure to COVID, uh, caring for a family member with COVID or caring for a family member whose regular caregiver is not available due to COVID. That is a, an employee whose child who would normally be in school or daycare can't go. Um, so even if there is an employment standards protection per se, they may have a bit of human rights protection as well, which we're going to have to think about, which will be commented on a little bit later in this presentation. But it's certainly worth keeping in mind when we're talking about attendance at the work site. Moving on, I've already touched a little bit on policies and procedures. Um, by now, you should have your COVID-19 workplace policies and procedures in place. If you don't, uh, start jotting notes right now, and by the end of this seminar, and by the end of today, have your policies and procedures in order and implemented in place. You don't want the Ministry of Labor coming to your workplace uh, and giving you orders for something that could have been prevented, like not having your policies and procedures in place implemented, monitored, and enforced. Policies should be in place to prevent symptomatic employees from attending to work as one of the main reasons why you would want a policy in place. Keep in mind that now daily screenings are mandatory and employers have to have a person who's responsible to take charge of the daily screenings to make sure people aren't coming to the workplace or coming even onto your work site uh, with symptoms. And then keep in mind and consider, what are you going to do when you get information about people's personal health status, uh, whether or not they have symptoms? Uh, whether they've been in close contact with a positive test, whether they are displaying a symptom. You have to be prepared to balance your obligations as an employer to keep the workplace safe and the other workers safe on the one hand, and on the other hand, keeping and respecting the privacy rights of the individual employee. This is medical health information, and there are rules and regulations about how we keep that information safe and how we use it in a responsible manner. Ensure that all of your workers know the policies and have acknowledged them with their signatures. So yes, have a written policy for things like social distancing, staggered start and end times, staggered breaks, PPE use on the site, uh, things of that nature. Anything that makes sense for you to implement as a reasonable policy, um, do so. And if you have a union, you're going to want to involve them 
in the implementation and certainly the uh, facilitation and enforcement of the policies. Make sure your policies are not falling offside your collective agreement provisions, first and foremost. But also, part of a union's role as the representatives for the employees in a bargaining unit is to help keep them safe as well. So they should be facilitating uh, the, the policies to keep a safe workplace. They should be helping the employees know and understand the rules. And this is something that we see with some of our clients who have workers who maybe English isn't their first language. Oftentimes the union reps uh, will be able to communicate with them in a way that possibly the uh, employer uh, can't do directly. And when you loop the union in at a, a preliminary uh, stage, uh, this is kind of what we're concerned with as lawyers, is there's a potential to mitigate your liability, a potential to avoid grievances. Uh, if there's something in your policy or something in the rollout or the application of your policy that might fall, fall offside the collective agreement or standard uh, labor law rules, uh, having a union involvement in the first place can give you a proper uh, either means to avoid a situation uh, or, you know, if necessary, a good response to a grievance that does come in. And the third thing I want to talk about today is contingency planning. Okay. Case numbers are falling in Ontario. We're down to 411 cases today. But we've also have three regions within Ontario who are declaring a state of emergency because they have rising cases. So, you know, things are trending in the right direction, but we're not in a position where we can rule out a fourth wave. And let's prepare for that now. In addition to having your policies and procedures implemented and in place, uh, be prepared. What lessons did you learn? in the first three waves? What lessons did we learn when the province of Ontario um, entered us into a shutdown, limited what kind of work we can do? Uh, draw on those lessons now and prepare for the future. Prepare for another worst case scenario and a best case scenario. For some of our clients, that's going to mean things like uh, organizing jobs, organizing materials and supplies, organizing their staffing and their policies. Do you have contracts for your non-union employees, uh, contracts that allow you to place employees on a temporary layoff? There are active legal disputes in the courts now about whether placing an employee on the infectious disease emergency leave, if you're not entitled to put them on a layoff, is a layoff and therefore a constructive dismissal, meaning a wrongful dismissal. So this is something that you're going to want to consider at this time, we have lots of clients asking what to do. How do we implement these contracts uh, for new employees and for existing employees? And, and it's not always easy, but something that you definitely want to think about and be prepared for now. And you know, most likely you'll be heading into bargaining in 2022. Um, or, and if you're entering into bargaining sooner, think about if you have a collective agreement, what, what lessons have we learned from the pandemic, from the shutdowns, that maybe having some new language or wording or even letters of understanding in your collective agreement uh, could have made life a little bit easier, could have made business a little bit more efficient. Uh, so think about, are you going to propose some pandemic measures in the next round of bargaining? Are you going to 
recommend or try to negotiate for things like vaccine policies uh, or procedures for vaccinations and, and disclosures for people who have been vaccinated. Um, these are things that we can start thinking about now to prepare for the future, to have some contingency planning in place. Now, of course, you can only control so much. So I'm going to turn it over to Jay now to discuss what happens when an employee simply refuses to attend for work. Yeah, Jay? Just, a, just a quick and very specific note for the unionized employers before I move on to the next section. But Mike had mentioned uh, staggered uh, start and end times, uh, differential hours of work, breaks and lunches. You, you'll want to be mindful of your collective agreement obligations in respect of hours of work and shift premiums and uh, items like that, just to make sure you're not, uh, as you redesign things, stepping into a situation where you're gonna cost yourself a pile of money because you put people into a shift premium situation or breach the hours of work provisions. And if it looks like you uh, would be in that type of situation, that's the, the exact time to reach out to the union and uh, see if uh, a modification can be agreed to that doesn't cost you any more money, but protects the health and safety of the workers. It would certainly behoove the union to uh, work uh, with you on that for a limited exemption while the um, pandemic restrictions remain in place. So uh, from that, we do get a lot of questions uh, about what if I have someone who is flat out refusing to uh, return to the work site or is not attending at the work site for various reasons, uh, can I just terminate that employee? Uh, the starting point for the discussion begins with the reason for the refusal or the non-attendance at site. There are certain uh, protected grounds for refusal or non-attendance that uh, have to be ruled out before you can consider disciplinary action. And what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, if there's a legitimate uh, health and safety work refusal based on an alleged unsafe condition at site. Uh, in that instance, you need to invoke your uh, health and safety policy and the requirements of the Occupational Health and Safety Act to uh, conduct first your internal investigation to determine whether there's an unsafe condition with your joint health and safety folks. Uh, and uh, if, if that's ruled out, but the refusal continues, uh, that's when the Ministry of Labor has to be brought in to make a, a decision. So that needs to be adhered to before anyone uh, engaging in a work refusal based on an alleged unsafe work condition can be disciplined because uh, the failure to do so could lead you to be in violation of Section 50 of the Occupational Health and Safety Act and have found to have engaged in a reprisal uh, against an employee for raising a legitimate health and safety refusal which carries with it all kinds of uh, nasty consequences, including damages and potentially orders of reinstatement, et cetera. Uh, the, the next category of protection is when someone is on a job protected leave under the Employment Standards Act. And I'm gonna set that aside and discuss in more detail in a moment, but generally speaking in relation to COVID-19, it, it's cases where someone legitimately is not attending at work or refusing to come to work because uh, they're entitled to infectious disease emergency leave. And the final broad category of refusal uh, that's legitimate is where there is a human rights code protected ground. And when it comes to a public health emergency like COVID-19, uh, that's typically some kind of a medical condition uh, 
that precludes the employee from being able to work uh, safely in the conditions that they're required to work in, even though they are an essential worker. So your workers are essential workers. Prima facie, you can require them to attend at work because they are essential. However, uh, someone who has a documented medical condition that uh, perhaps it's an immunocompromised situation, uh, they've got medical to support it. One of the ways you may have to accommodate that employee is to put them on an extended a leave of absence until it is safe for them to be able to return to the work site or the workplace. So just in summary, if the reason for the refusal is based on one of those three protected grounds, uh, then the non-attendance or the refusal is legally authorized and must generally be accommodated. Uh, a little note for folks on what is covered by the job protected leaves under the infectious disease emergency leave uh, provisions in the Employment Standards Act. And, and the IDEL that we're gonna talk about, I'll just colloquially call it IDEL. IDEL includes both the three paid days that uh, you heard Christina speak about and an extended unpaid period of time uh, under the infectious disease emergency leave provisions, which uh, is not in most instances time limited in any way, but it is unpaid. So three broad categories of job protected leaves uh, for the IDEL. First is when there's an absence for the investigation, supervision, or treatment related to COVID-19. Uh, what does that encompass? Uh, there's a number of areas it encompasses. Uh, first of all, a public health ordered quarantine following identification of close contact. So while they're in quarantine, they're protected under the IDEL. And the IDEL operates just like the other protected leaves under the Employment Standards Act. So for instance, pregnancy and parental leave. When someone is on pregnancy parental leave, their employment is protected and they're entitled to be reinstated to their former position subject to some minor limitations. Uh, once the uh, leave ends, and that's true of IDEL as well. So uh, once they've served out their quarantine, uh, they're entitled to be uh, returned to work. Secondly, time off for testing following a possible exposure. Uh, that's covered by IDEL until they're cleared to return to work. Uh, time off for vaccination is also encompassed by the IDEL because it's considered a treatment related to COVID-19. So if someone's asking uh, for the shift off or the afternoon off to go uh, to a clinic because they've booked an appointment and need to get their shot, uh, you're going to have to accommodate that. And it may be paid uh, if they're still within the window of getting their three uh, paid IDEL days, which again, uh, the maximum pay for the day is $200. Uh, for most construction employees, they're earning more than $200 a day. So your cap and your claim to WSIB is going to be $200. The final uh, category is time off after a positive test while you're awaiting medical clearance. So when someone is at home um, uh, recuperating from uh, COVID positive uh, and, and awaiting medical clearance from public health to uh, return to the workplace. So those are the absences uh, for investigation, supervision or treatment that are encompassed by IDEL. There's two other categories uh, broadly speaking, that IDEL captures. Uh, 
The second one is caregiving duties for family members. And uh, broadly speaking, uh, that includes childcare or homeschooling obligations while the schools are closed. And just to be clear, we're talking about childcare or homeschooling that arise as a result of the restrictions imposed to uh, deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. A, a choice, and, and my colleagues may disagree with me, but in my view, a, a choice to homeschool while the schools are open doesn't attract the protection of IDEL. But for the last few months, as we all know, the schools have been closed. A lot of parents, working parents, have no other had no other alternative uh, but to have someone at home for a school-aged child uh, who is learning online. And that is certainly encompassed by the IDEL and has to be accommodated uh, as well. It includes the care of a close family member um, dealing with, with COVID-19. And finally, uh, although a lot of people don't, uh, well, there's not much going on with it right now, but it, it also includes the period of quarantine following travel. So if someone has had to, to, to leave for even for emergency reasons and is returning to the country and is required to undergo the post-return quarantine, that is, uh, is captured by the IDEL as well. So we've covered basically refusals and non-attendance where the leave is protected and we can't discipline. Uh, where is the absence not authorized and attendance can be required at the job site on pain of discipline. So a couple of examples, uh, I think you should be aware, a, a general concern about accessing transit or uh, commuting would not uh, be a protected reason to refuse uh, or not to attend at work. Now there's a possible exception, I would say, um, for mandatory pickup. I know a number of construction employers will arrange for a central site uh, with a van or what have you to pick up and drive a, a crew uh, to the work site. And if that was mandatory and someone refused, I could see that given the close proximity and the enclosed space, uh, potentially being the basis for a legitimate uh, refusal. But I think if you if you just offer the option, look, you can drive yourself to site or get yourself to site, but you got to be there, the, the carpool is only an option, then uh, there'd be no legitimate basis for a refusal. Uh, most particularly for the construction industry, because your workers are all essential workers, a refusal to work with your co-workers or other trades on site, assuming that all uh, policies and procedures are being adhered to and proper uh, personal protective equipment is being supplied at work would not give rise to a legitimate refusal. So I just, I don't feel comfortable doing my job as an essential worker, even though I've been provided with all the proper PPE and all the proper policies and protocols are being maintained. I can't just say I'm not gonna work um, side by side with someone else or with another trade. So that's not a legitimate basis. And the final, some of you may have run into it. I, I hear it anecdotally from a lot of employers that there are uh, workers who would uh, 
just rather remain home and collect the Canada Recovery Benefit. It was the CERB, now it's the CRB, uh, rather than being recalled to work when there's work available. Uh, wanting to remain on government benefits is definitely not grounds uh, for a refusal to return or non-attendance at work. Uh, so in these circumstances that we've just outlined, a continued refusal to return uh, may be treated as a voluntary quit or a job abandonment. Uh, but linking back to something Mike said earlier, it's document, 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 and doubly so for the unionized employers. Uh, don't just pick up the phone and say, get your ass back here or you're gone. That's not gonna be good enough. You need to document the attempts made to return. You probably have to send a, a note, whether it's an email, a text, a letter, what have you to the employee saying you're refusing to return. Uh, you've got no legitimate basis for not returning. Your absence is considered unauthorized. And unless you return by you know, shift tomorrow, uh, we'll deem you to have voluntarily quit or abandon your job. With that clear and lawful instruction to return, it's only at that point that you can uh, move forward with a, with a termination of a, a refusing employee. And so onto the hottest topic of the day uh, with uh, Christina, which is, uh, well, it's not, we're gonna get into vaccines, sorry, I, I messed up. I thought we were moving into vaccines next, but managing accommodation and medical information is also an important and difficult area to deal with um, during the pandemic, so Christina. Absolutely. Thanks, Jay. Uh, before we get into this, I'd actually like to take us back briefly uh, to the IDEL slide and just to point out for that three days of paid sick leave, the conditions for receiving that payment are those listed here and the same as would be um, considered for the unpaid job protected infectious disease emergency leave. So essentially, if you've qualified for one, you've qualified for the other, uh, subject, of course, to the three-day limit. All right, I'm getting back on track. Accommodation issues and medical information. This is where things start to get a bit more complex. So for example, Jay mentioned that if schools are open and a parent has decided listen, I'm not sending my child back, uh, I'd like to remain off work or remain at home, that does not attract the job protected infectious disease emergency leave, I, Jay, we're agreed on that, but it may attract the duty to accommodate. So for example, if the child is at high risk because of a health condition uh, or for some other reason, the duty to accommodate on the basis of family status may be engaged. So typically during COVID-19, the hot topics in accommodation have been disability and family status. Now, some employees may be high risk themselves and may feel that they are unable to return to work despite um, being an essential worker despite having proper protocols and procedures in the workplace, but they feel because they have asthma or they have some immunocompromising condition that it's simply not safe for them to return. 
or they may feel that, listen, I can't come into the workplace, I can work from home, or I can't do my current job, I think these restrictions uh, would assist in me returning. So in any of those cases, the employer does have a duty to accommodate to the point of undue hardship. Now that's not to say that you simply need to take it on face value that the employee requires the accommodation that they're looking for. And you certainly don't need to provide the specific accommodation that's being requested. And that's the case, whether it's related to COVID-19 or any other unrelated reason that may trigger a duty to accommodate in the normal course. So first, there's always the duty to inquire. So if an employee has raised that they have an accommodation need, whether that be health related or family status related, uh, the first thing to do is to seek additional information. And as you'll see on the slide, that right to information expands with time. If it's say a, a two week absence that's being requested, you might need one doctor's note some basic information, but if this is going to be a substantial absence, uh, you're certainly entitled to further information about the employee's restrictions and the employee's needs. Uh, that said, employers are never entitled to a diagnosis. Uh, they're not entitled to new information about the medical treatment that an employee may be receiving. Uh, however, you are entitled to know what's the concern in the workplace and what possible measures can be taken to address that concern. So keep that in mind as we move out of uh, the current third wave of COVID-19 and hopefully, fingers crossed, into post-pandemic life, that there may be employees who still have uh, pandemic-related accommodation needs that don't necessarily fall under infectious disease emergency leave, or other job protected leave. Christina, if I can just interject for a moment. Of course. I think there's two points, two additional points that um, bear some consideration during these still unprecedented times. You're absolutely right in the general principle that an employer is not entitled to a diagnosis. On the other hand, because we are in the midst of a pandemic that is highly communicable, uh, generally we are um, uh, expecting an employee will disclose, uh, if not a positive diagnosis, then at least whether they've had close contact with someone who's received a positive diagnosis or whether they have symptoms of COVID-19, which is necessary for the health and safety of the workplace so we can responsibly disclose that information to people who may be affected by it. So those people can go out and get their tests or those people can go out and, and access the IDL and isolate uh, and, and try to stop the spread of the virus. So uh, yes, generally that's what we caution our employees is you're not entitled to the diagnosis and it won't mean anything to you anyway, even if you get the diagnosis. Well, a COVID-19 diagnosis, that actually does mean something to the employer. So, so uh, you know, in certain circumstances, we may uh, uh, be requiring uh, disclosure of that diagnosis. Another aspect is typically when it comes to obtaining medical information, 
an employer isn't entitled to get it until there's some uh, reason to believe that there is uh, a medical uh, issue, medical condition. And that normally comes by way of some disclosure from the employee. But could there be a circumstance in which the employer has a responsibility to take those positive steps and ask the employee about their medical condition? Absolutely. That's a great point, Mike. Um, touching first on, on the COVID piece, certainly a COVID diagnosis is something that the employer would need to know about. And that takes you right back to those mandatory screening tools. There is an obligation on the employee to disclose if there's been close contact, if they're symptomatic, and certainly whether uh, they're positive for COVID-19. Uh, and Mike's absolutely right. There is at times what we call the duty to inquire if an employer believes that there may be something going on with an employee that may require accommodation. Um, there is a positive obligation on the employer to make inquiries. So for example, if you have an employee who's always punctual, perfect attendance, pleasant to work with, all of a sudden they're missing their shifts, they're late to work, uh, they're getting into fights with their coworkers. That might be a sign that there's something going on. And as the employer, um, certainly don't uh, accuse them of anything, accuse them of, oh, this, you know, is there a condition here? But make inquiries, do it in a respectful and reasonable manner and see if there's anything that you can provide as the employer to facilitate success for that employee in the workplace. Now, if, if I can, again, thinking more specifically about COVID, sometimes, you're, you know, perhaps somebody fills out their daily screening report disclosing no symptoms, uh, but your foreman is, is making their rounds and they notice that this employee is coughing and sneezing quite a bit. That might be a time where, as an employer, you have a responsibility to say, look, you gave us this screening report that says you're symptom-free, but you seem to be exhibiting some symptoms. Is there something that we should know about? Perhaps there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for it. Perhaps, or perhaps there's a non-COVID explanation for it. Uh, but perhaps there isn't. And, and I would say that in that case, the employer has an obligation to say, you know, look, we're going to need you to go home, get checked out by a doctor. And if you're uh, cleared to come back to work, give us that information. But until then, uh, we have to keep you away. Absolutely. And that takes us nicely into our next topic, which is COVID-19 testing practices. So Mike is absolutely right. There is the screening tool. It's mandatory. It's there for a reason. And that's to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace and to be able to track uh, symptoms and symptomatic individuals in the event that there's a positive test or an outbreak. So certainly if an employee appears to be untruthful on their screening form, or perhaps they've developed symptoms midday, uh, the employer absolutely should be following up on that. I know pollen has been especially bad this year, and, and so many people have allergies that may be causing coughing or sneezing regularly. Uh, but that's something that it's perfectly reasonable for an employer to request documentation uh, confirming that the symptoms that the employee is exhibiting are unrelated to COVID-19 before allowing that employee to return to the workplace. And 
It is also reasonable, and we've seen jurisprudence that holds to this, uh, for an employer to mandate that employees either uh, get a test and present a negative test for COVID-19 or self-isolate for a period of 14 days if they appear to be symptomatic or if they've come in contact with a positive case. So this can be either in a workplace outbreak, this can come up after an individual has disclosed that there's been a close contact, or it can be in circumstances where public health has contacted you as the employer and said, listen, we suspect that there may be an outbreak in your workplace. We recommend that everyone be tested. Um, and in any of those situations, it is reasonable for an employer to mandate testing. And in the event that an employee refuses to hold that employee out of the workplace, you, you may run into trouble if you say, okay, there no questions, you're either tested or you're out of here. Uh, but you can certainly say you either get tested, present a negative test result, or we will treat you as though you have tested positive and you need to isolate for 14 days. And there's been some recent case law that's come out. Uh, for example, I believe it was Alice Dawn who implemented a testing policy and, and they mandated testing after a workplace outbreak. And that was upheld at arbitration. So that's some good news for employers in implementing and enforcing some common sense testing practices. Um, and then the, the final point is one way to encourage testing, and as I'm sure uh, Jay will discuss briefly to encourage vaccination, is to provide some benefit to employees if they buy in to either the testing policy or the vaccination policy. So that can be something as simple as a half hour's pay, an extra vacation day, some time off, um, in order to compensate the employee for receiving the test, going out and getting the test, or the vaccine, whatever it may be. Um, for unionized employers, just be careful as uh, providing a benefit to unionized workers without proper consultation with the union might cause some difficulties uh, with, a, with a grievance or a ULP. But I think the experience we've had is that most unions are reasonable to an extent when it comes to, to testing and, and vaccination. And uh, but it's always worthwhile to have those discussions. And now I will I'll pass it off to Jay, uh, who will be taking us through the real hot topic of the day, which is vaccination policies. Actually, I think uh, I think Mike has the next couple of slides, and then I'm I'm jumping in afterwards. So yeah, well, we'll, we'll get to Jay quickly because we're going a little bit long on time, and and I think I can summarize our guidance on vaccine uh, vaccine policies uh, pretty concisely. Um, you should have a vaccination policy in your workplace. Here's what you shouldn't do. Try to mandate vaccinations. Uh, may seem like a good idea. Uh, we all want to stop the spread of COVID-19 and clearly vaccines are the way to do it. Uh, but unless something has drastically changed since the last time I looked, forcing a person to undergo a medical procedure is technically an assault. So no, uh, except for very exceptional workplaces, an employer will not be able to mandate that employees get the vaccine. 
But yes, put a vaccination policy into place. What you're going to want to look at is things like allowing people some time away from work to go get their vaccine. Uh, you know, take, take an approach of encouraging a vaccination rather than mandating it. Um, and, and another thing we're going to want to keep in mind is we certainly expect uh, uh, as vaccines roll out, guidance from our public health authorities on uh, you know, public health restrictions and guidance for people as they get vaccinated. Your workplace COVID-19 policies and protocols should evolve as the public health guidance evolves as well. Incorporate that into your vaccination policies. And in order to do that, you may want to consider how do we get information from the employees about whether they have been vaccinated. And as you've heard from Christina, getting medical information is something that an employer can typically only do in certain circumstances, uh, such as when there's an accommodation at issue. Um, but for, you know, for example, if somebody says under our vaccination policy, I get time off to go get my vaccine, well, it would be perfectly legitimate then to say, if you're going to access this time off for your vaccine, uh, show us uh, uh, you know, confirmation that you actually went to your vaccine appointment and got vaccinated. Or again, as public health guidance changes and restrictions loosen about what people can do uh, once they're vaccinated, uh, your, your workplace policies and procedures are going to change. Uh, but again, conditional upon the employee being vaccinated. You may be able to loosen restrictions on things like PPE and face masks when somebody has been vaccinated. So uh, to ensure that people are, are abiding by uh, those uh, legitimate policies, uh, it would only be appropriate to get confirmation that they have been vaccinated but you're not just going to ask somebody if they've been vaccinated because you're curious about it. It has to be a rational, legitimate workplace reason why you could possibly get that information from them. And one thing that you're definitely going to want to keep in mind is that there may be legitimate reasons why people can't get vaccinated. There may be, for example, health reasons or religious reasons. You know, there have been cases in the past about things like uh, you know, the, the flu shots. Uh, or measles vaccines, um, you know, and, and some exceptions are carved out for people who cannot, for one reason or another, that is protected under human rights legislation, get the vaccine. So make sure your vaccination policies take that into account as well. Uh, I think that's about as concise as I can make it. And now I'll turn it over to Jay uh, to, to, to comment further. Yeah, and Mike's already touched on, on on some of this stuff, but you know, one of the hottest topics du jour on talk radio is uh, can an employer terminate an employee who refuses to be vaccinated? And I call it the uh, Howard Levitt business plan because he's out there actively saying, "Oh yes, you can fire the employee who refuses to be vaccinated," and sure as heck, he's going to be the first one to bring the, bring the big ass wrongful dismissal claim against the first employer who acts on that ill-advised advice and uh, terminates one of their employees who refuses to be vaccinated. Our considered view is that it's extremely unlikely uh, that an employer could successfully terminate for cause 
an employee who refuses to be vaccinated for the reason Mike uh, articulated, which is that what you're essentially doing is requiring them to undergo an invasive medical procedure uh, with pain of losing their job as a, as a consequence of a refusal. And it's just not gonna fly either with courts or arbitrators. And in fact, in the union world, there are arbitration decisions out there pre-pandemic dealing with parallel type issues uh, where the employers were found not to have been able to uh, terminate employees engaging in a refusal. So assume you can't terminate someone who doesn't wanna be vaccinated, but like everything in life, uh, choices have consequences. And uh, we're hearing more and more that uh, some owners of buildings and other properties and general contractors maybe also are contemplating implementing policies requiring proof of vaccination uh, prior to trades accessing their buildings or job sites. Uh, this could, depending on the circumstances, result in an employee or one of your workers being laid off due to a lack of work because they chose not to be vaccinated. Except in uh, cases where the human rights code applies, and I'll touch on that just briefly later, uh, there's no duty in my view to look at reassigning a, a worker to another site or project uh, who's chosen not to be vaccinated and can't attend work uh, because of that choice and the restrictions of the uh, owner or the general. So I think of an example, uh, some of you know, I do a fair amount of work with uh, demolition contractors and, and they're often doing interior abatement type work in occupied buildings. Uh, they may call the union hall and look for uh, some qualified abatement workers depending on the type of abatement they have going on. And the owner of that occupied building may well require proof of vaccination for entry. Well, the employee who's dispatched from the hall, who attends at the work site, and then is unable to provide proof of vaccination may well be heading right back to the hall. Um, I think of it in the context of third party uh, site bans, it's, it's similar. You may agree or disagree with the policy and the rules and the decision of the owner or the general, but there's no there's no recourse. If they won't permit that person on the premises they control, we can't get them on there. And they wind up in the case of union guy, perhaps going back to the hall in case of a non-union uh, sitting at home on an unpaid uh, leave until there is work available. The, the caveat to that is the, just quickly, we've touched on it, but the human rights of code accommodation situations where someone has uh, particular issues that uh, require accommodation uh, in terms of not being able to take the COVID-19 vaccine. The predominant one will be the medical situation where someone has supporting medical information that says it's uh, not advisable for them to take the vaccine, whether because of immune conditions that they have or other, other health conditions. If you've got that supporting medical, uh, then you have an obligation to look at reassignment. If they're not able to access particular site uh, because of the restrictions, uh, then you would have, a, in terms of your duty to accommodate, try and look for something else uh, they could do uh, without uh, there being a proof of vaccination requirement. The other area that potentially arises is religion or creed. Um, I think that's less so. We've seen a few instances where it's being asserted, but there really needs to be 
some nexus between some tenet of the, the faith or belief system and the decision not to vaccinate. And uh, my understanding anyways, is that uh, most uh, faiths and religious organizations are encouraging uh, their faithful to be vaccinated. So I'd be very surprised, except in, in some very peculiar circumstances, if there was a, a valid accommodation claim on religion or creed, but certainly there will be medical ones. Um, our final topic of discussion is just on the uh, site access. And we've talked about the consequences of not being vaccinated and the owners and generals controlling the site. But there might also be, as time goes on, and Mike had kind of touched on this, uh, a loosening of standards at site of the requirements for PPE and other things for fully vaccinated workers. And so what's going to happen is, you know, if I'm fully vaccinated and I've demonstrated that, maybe I don't have to wear a mask in certain circumstances anymore. But someone who is unvaccinated, uh, whether by choice or whether by medical restriction, is still required to wear that PPE because we're still in the midst to some degree of a pandemic. It's going to become evident to the workers at site who is and who isn't vaccinated. And we have some concerns about harassment and bullying uh, type situations or ostracization arising when people can identify who is and who isn't vaccinated. So uh, to avoid that kind of shunning of the unvaccinated, uh, be ready with your policies and communications to head off those issues, uh, and particularly with concerns for employees who are being medically accommodated. Because if you don't take steps to prevent them from being shunned, ostracized, bullied, harassed at site, and they are, uh, and they suffer as a consequence, maybe they quit, uh, maybe they experience uh, medical issues as a result, uh, you've ex you have exposed yourself to a, a human rights complaint uh, under the code and uh, a potential trip to our much loved not human rights tribunal. So that's a, just a, a final note of caution there in terms of uh, making sure uh, you're, you're protecting uh, those folks from any kind of uh, negative consequences at site as things move forward. That'll bring us to our question and answer. Okay, so the first question, which I think we did uh, touch on as we went is what would fall under the paid sick leave? Only COVID related accident incidents or while waiting for a test result. Uh, so as we said, it's anything that would incur an entitlement to infectious disease emergency leave. So that can be a caregiving obligation, going for a test if you're symptomatic or going for a vaccine. Uh, so anything that would entitle an employee to the leave would also entitle someone to the sick pay. That's right. And just remember that what we're talking about is infectious disease emergency leave. So to the specific question about only COVID related, under present circumstances, yes, only only COVID related, but under all of those categories that Christina mentioned. And second question we have, are the temporary paid sick days in addition to any other sick days? Uh, no, so those would be inclusive of what the employer already pays 
So if an employer pays three sick days, the employee does not get an additional three sick days. They just have the three total. So if an employer pays one sick day, uh, then the employee would have access to two additional sick days. The only caveat to that, Christina, the legislation is certainly not the model of drafting clarity, but uh, it's during this period where it's backdated to April and goes forward to September 25th, if you have a worker who, uh, for whatever reason, exhausted their three, three paid sick, say you provide three paid sick days, they exhausted their three paid sick days in January and February, so they've got nothing in the bank for the April to September period, uh, I think arguably and probably uh, they're entitled to the IDEL uh, paid days. Now, bearing in mind that those are reimbursable through WSIB, that it's a maximum of $200 per day or what the employee would have earned, whichever the lesser and in construction employees, that'll be $200 a day, uh, reimbursable through WSIB. So you shouldn't be out of pocket over it, but just recognize that just because you provide three days, you've still got to look at what the employee has in their bank during this period that's covered uh, by it. And uh, you may have to provide some additional, if uh, you've got people who have already exhausted their entitlements prior to the, uh, call it the, the paid IDEL coverage period. Sorry, just one point of clarity. Um, it, it is not just the COVID-19 that uh, triggers the infectious disease emergency leave. Right now, it's defined as diseases caused by a novel coronavirus, including SARS, including MERS, and including COVID-19. Well, that's right. That's what I said at the moment. Uh, we're only dealing with COVID-19. And, and one additional caveat, Jay, that's a great point to be mindful of uh, employees' sick banks. And for the WSIB reimbursement, that is only available for the surplus days. So for example, if you've already have in your contracts and your collective agreements that employees are entitled to three sick days, uh, they're accessing those days during this time period, the employer will not be able to get a refund from the WSIB for those days that are already contractually provided. So I think the way to think of it is you, you got to make them exhaust their internal uh, credits first uh, before you make any application. Exactly. And then here's a good question, uh, whether the sick leave payments will affect or show up in a company's WSIB premiums. So that's not something that I've seen much discussion of yet. Um, my initial instinct is no, as this is something that's available to employers who both are and are not um, currently registered under the WSIB. Uh, any thoughts, Jay and Mike? I, I care to agree, Christina. This is a program that's just being administered through the WSIB, uh, but isn't... Uh, encompassed by the framework of the WSIA, the, the legislation. So, and as you pointed out, it uh, non-WSIB uh, non registrant employers are also able to make claims through that, that portal. It's just, the, it's just the mechanism for reimbursement. It's not, uh, I don't think, going on your, uh, on your tab for future premium purposes. So next question, uh, if an employee advises their employer that someone they live with tests positive for COVID-19 and must now self-isolate, 
what documentation can be requested to validate such a claim if they have not received specific instructions from their public health department? Well, I think generally we're going to want to err on the side of caution and unless you have any reason not to take that information from your employee in good faith. Uh, I mean, I really don't see any reason to risk it, but if you if you do have some legitimate concern, uh, you know, now the one thing we're not able to uh, request or require under the Employment Standards Act for the idle leave is uh, a, a certificate from a doctor. Uh, but a simple screenshot of a positive test, that's not a, a note from a doctor. So uh, in, in times where we've been requiring uh, confirmation that somebody has COVID-19 under uh, um, a request for a leave, that's what we've been asking for. And that's the only thing that I would say is probably a legitimate uh, uh, medical information that you could uh, obtain from the employee. And I, I would agree with that, Mike. And the one thing I would add is that certainly uh, if an employee is off isolating on an unpaid leave, um, I, I think I've, in any event, I think erring on the side of caution is the correct advice. And certainly if the employee is off unpaid, um, if an employer is providing employees with pay during that time period, I think there's certainly more ability to request confirmation that they're entitled to that leave and, and that benefit. But again, as Mike said, um, can't request a doctor's note, but can certainly look for the positive test from the family member. Okay, so next question. Uh, is there any chance if your employee has multiple employers that you will be denied the sick leave because that employee has already used it with a different employer? So that's that's another good question, Mike. I see you've you've unmuted. Would you like to take this one? Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing in the regulation or the act that specifically says it's uh, per employer. I think. Um, you know, practically speaking, if somebody has, uh, you know, two two employers and and uh, you know they're they're losing uh, days in, in time uh, based on uh, COVID nineteen, um, you know, maybe there'll be some overlap. It, you know, it, it's hard to hard to say for sure, but there's nothing set out in in the legislation or the regulation that uh, would say it's it's per employee, per employer, um, or, or sorry, limited uh, to three days total, regardless of how many jobs you have. Uh, so no, there, there's nothing that indicates to me that if you give somebody their paid time off and apply to WSIB, WSIB will say no, because they got it from another employer. Uh, that That's not apparent on its face to me in anywhere. Yeah, and I think as a, as a practical matter, the information you're supplying uh, to WSIB when you're making that claim I wouldn't allow them to uh, cross-reference unless I'm wrong. I don't think you're providing the SIN number of the employee. You're just providing some uh, pay record with a name on it, um, in, in which case there, there's no, you know, how many John Smiths are there that work for multiple employers? So I don't know that there's any way that the WSIB, even if it were a condition that you could only take three days cumulative from all your employers, 
how there's any practical way to cross-reference and determine that. But I agree with Mike that uh, that's not what the legislation contemplates anyways, or the regulation that it's three days with your employer and you can have certainly more than one employer and make those claims. All right, so this, is, this has been a hot topic and we touched on it some during the main presentation. Uh, what happens when schools reopen and parents still want to keep their kids at home? Uh, can employers enforce the return to work of employees? So I, I touched on that. And uh, my uh, unlearly answer is hell yeah. Uh, that's a choice at that point. If uh, the schools are reopened, and parents are choosing to keep their kids at home and you want them back at work. Uh, it's not a family status accommodation. That's just a normal run of the mill uh, choice to keep your kids uh, and homeschool them. And the obligation is on the employee to make whatever arrangements need to be made then to have the kids at home and still attend at work during their working hours. In other words, the, the human rights code does not apply and the duty to accommodate doesn't arise. I think the one caveat I would add to that is in the very unusual situation where there's some health condition at play with the child, uh, there may be the need for some inquiry, but otherwise, absolutely, I would completely agree. Okay, and then if an employee travels for personal reasons, is that still job protected, specifically with respect to the quarantine? So uh, I'll see what you guys think. And it burns my backside, but unfortunately, I think they are still entitled to IDEL, even when it was a choice to take a vacation and knowing that you had to quarantine upon your return. Yeah, I, I uh, begrudgingly agree with Jay. Uh, not that I, I find agreeing with Jay distasteful. I, I, I just don't uh, like that outcome, but I just don't see any way around it at this point. I think the one, the one thing I would add is when employees are requesting their time off, if as the employer you become aware uh, that they intend to travel and will need to self-isolate, have those conversations on the front end and say, listen, we're expecting you back to work on this day. So organize your time accordingly. Um, and if you need to factor in an isolation period, we need to discuss that now. Uh, at the back end, you know, if they do come back and say, I, I need the time off, I'm entitled to the leave. I, I agree with Mike and Jay. Unfortunately, it seems the legislation contemplates that. Uh, but I think some proactive discussions and, you know, making it clear that as an employer, you will not be happy with that outcome. Well, and, uh, and remember, too, Christine, you've hit on a really good point. Uh, subject to any collective agreement obligations people may have out there, but collective agreement obligations aside, it's the employer's prerogative to whether to grant or deny a vacation request. And if the employee is requesting a vacation to travel out of country for non-emergency reasons under the particular circumstances that we're under right now, you may well deny the request knowing that you'd have to give them the two-week isolation period unpaid when they come back. It wouldn't be an unreasonable, uh, for unionized employers, uh, an unreasonable exercise of management rights. And just it's something that the Employment Standards Act for the non-union employers specifically allows, so. 
And this one, I think we've also touched on some. Uh, can we request the employees voluntarily let us know if they've been vaccinated? Uh, my thoughts are that you can ask for confirmation and it's, it's helpful if there's some benefit provided. So for example, I think uh, one of Jay's points was, well, if you're relaxing PPE in accordance with public health guidelines, only those employees who have confirmed their vaccination status will be able to take advantage of the relaxed PPE standards. Uh, if employees choose not to disclose, then they'll simply be treated as though they haven't been vaccinated. Yeah, and I, I add to that that I, it's going to evolve. So there's a lot more questions and answers right now. But there's at least a good argument to be made that in construction, uh, an employer ought to be able to require employees to disclose their vaccination status so that they know who they have on site who is unvaccinated in the event that there is a workplace outbreak or an exposure that's identified by public health. So you know uh, who will be required to uh, go home and isolate uh, as opposed to those who are fully vaccinated who may not be required by public health. We don't know how it's gonna work out yet, but those who are fully vaccinated may not be required by public health in the event of, a, of an outbreak or exposure to isolate. And if they're not, then we need to know who can continue to work and who we have to send home. Yeah, keep in mind too that construction is a far more uh, transitory uh, employment sector than, than other industries. And even for just contact tracing purposes, uh, you know, if, if there is a positive test or an outbreak, uh, it would be much harder to track who possibly could have come into contact with somebody uh, when you have people going from worksite to worksite as part of their job, as opposed to somebody who is in one particular fixed address for their work. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I would definitely say that construction has a, a has kind of a special consideration in terms of finding out who's been vaccinated that way. And the one caveat I would add, um somewhat jumping off of this is just to be mindful, we've talked about potentially loosening uh, PPE expectations as more employees are vaccinated. That should only be done on the guidance of public health. Uh, although we're hoping, and I think as we look to our, our friends in the States, we see that there is some guidance from uh, the CDC that if you're vaccinated, you don't need to be masking. But until we have that direction, from the relevant public health authorities here, employers should be maintaining consistent PPE standards the way they have been uh, for all employees, regardless of vaccination status. Okay, so then we have, uh, what about an employee who doesn't want to get vaccinated? but work is being completed for homeowners that are immunocompromised or for construction in the healthcare industry. Yeah, that's uh, square on my example of where choices have consequences and that employee for the protection of the immunocompromised homeowner or the residents in the healthcare facility, if it's an occupied premise, uh, may well not be able to come to work for you. So uh, in the case of a Again, a unionized employee coming through a hiring hall, uh, they might be sent back to the hall as unsuitable uh, for work at that site. Or in the case of a non-unionized employee, 
uh, may be sent home on an unpaid uh, leave or layoff uh, pending there being a work opportunity for them, uh, which may or may not arise uh, in the future. And they may or may not have any right to be recalled. So in the case of a non-union employee uh, where they're laid off uh, due to lack of, bearing in mind we're dealing with a construction employee, a non-unionized construction employee who is laid off due to lack of work because of this type of scenario has no entitlements under the Employment Standards Act and they have no uh, right to be recalled uh, to return to work with the employer either. So they're out of luck. Okay, and I think we've we've touched on this one to some extent. Uh, we currently require staff to wear masks when walking in our facility. If we ease up our guidance and allow staff who are vaccinated to not be required to wear a mask, can we still could we require them to show proof of vaccination? Um, I think yes, you certainly could because the easing of restrictions if that is directed by public health is contingent on the vaccination status and in order to ensure the health and safety of all employees you would need to know that those employees who are allowed to relax their PPE standards uh, are not going to pose a risk to others and and to amplify mike's earlier point about you know uh, vaccinations can't be made mandatory but they can certainly be strongly encouraged well there's one potential uh, item of strong encouragement for those who are holding out uh, because they're vaccine hesitant or what have you. If public health says, well, the new guidance is fully vaccinated, people don't need to wear masks in the workplace. Hey, it's your choice, but unless and until you provide proof that you're fully vaccinated, uh, that mask is staying on. All right, and that brings us uh, to the end of our questions. Uh, Mike, Jay, any final comments? Yeah, I would, I would just say, you know, obviously this is, uh, again, even though we've had this uh, or similar webinar several times, they are still unprecedented times. Um, you know, we have to be very cautious as employers always do, particularly in the construction industry where we uh, play by a little bit different rules uh, as in their industries. Um, it, it's definitely worth your while to be familiar with what your obligations are as an employer in the construction industry. And, uh, you know, our information is up on your screen. So uh, reach out when you have uh, questions or need some advice or, or guidance. The uh, sign off of the pandemic. Uh, test negative and stay positive, everyone. <laughs> Thank you everyone so much for joining us for another webinar. Uh, as always, keep an eye out for our um, Employer's Choice uh, blog or Employer's Edge blog rather and our podcast and future webinars. Um, sign up for our mailing list if you haven't already and of course stay well.